Welcome to a Neon Jazz interview with an exciting up-and-coming jazz singer, born and bred in Kansas and now living in San Francisco, California. Her name is Lisa Engelken. And in our recent interview, we talked about a myriad of topics, ranging from who she would like to meet in the jazz world if she could, and what is going on now with her new album, Little Warrior, that is getting really good reviews, along with much, much more. Dig it. Good evening. How are you, Joe? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Good, 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 good. You ready to go? Yeah. So I'm going to start off with a familiar question, and I'm going to phrase it a little differently, and this is what I want to know. The stark contrast between a place like San Francisco and Kansas, growing up in Kansas, what was that like to give you that love of music and getting into jazz kind of as your textured backdrop? Kansas, uh, well, it's where I grew up. It's where I I lived all of my life until, um, you know, 18 on up to, and then started traveling really after that on my own. But uh, Kansas, I, I'm from the land. I'm from the earth. As my uh, track from Caravan, I did, a, did an album in 2010 called Caravan, and I did a lyric version to Freddie Hubbard's Red Clay. Yeah. And uh, I entitled that From the Earth. And it basically does sum up how I feel about myself. I'm essentially a, a person of the earth. I grew up working the land with a farm family and uh, in the, under big skies and up stars and clouds and everything. So it's a very expansive uh, place to live. Uh, my environment was very much about space, lots of space, open spaces, wide open spaces, and lands and seasons and life and death. Um, so that's very different. You're right. That's very different from San Francisco, which has kind of a, basically we're, we have like a wine cellar, um, and I'm talking about the city proper, San Francisco proper is where I live. Sure. Uh, not in the East Bay or the more sunnier parts. Yeah. But we're we're essentially in a uh, I like to call it a uh, a wine cellar temperature basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're, we're very cool, not cold, not hot. Just uh, probably where you should keep your wines. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. You always need a sweater and some layers and uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I had I had the good fortune of growing up in a place where. Uh, things changed with seasons, visually, physically, uh, emotionally. And so I think that even that seasonal depth uh, and being in touch with the earth on such a on such a level does create a certain sort of sensibility uh, to life uh, that I'm sure has influenced my songwriting, my sensibilities, my aesthetic and artistic sensibilities on so many levels, as well as, you know, just who I am and how I think, my thought processes, how, how I walk through the world and view the world. So just even from a, that basic level of uh, being in touch with nature on such a, uh, nature being the forefront of my life, our living, you know, was from the land. And so... Uh, being in touch with nature in such a strong way, I think definitely 
uh, I know it has influenced who I am on so many different levels, and that including musically. Now, as far as getting to the textures of jazz, as you say, uh, again, this is not only was an expansive place, but it was a very isolated place. Yeah. And so, yes, it was isolated uh, geographically, two hours, an hour from Topeka, two hours from Kansas City, um, but nevertheless, near enough, and uh, to those little places, right, those little pockets of culture, Lawrence uh, is also a great pocket of uh, culture, Yeah. Kansas is, um, for various reasons, great art, great music programs. Uh, even Topeka had the Topeka Jazz Workshop, and I still think they have that going. Yeah. I don't know to what extent anymore. But um, I was introduced to jazz, I suppose, through the radio, through uh, public TV, mm-hmm. through, I was an avid uh, public TV watcher from a very young age. Uh, that's pretty much what I love to watch was public TV. Yeah. Um, I don't know why, but I did. I loved ballet. I would watch ballet for just, I guess as a, as a small child, I, I I always wanted to be a ballet dancer. So, And I'd always watch the classical and symphonic broadcasts as well as all types of broadcasts musically. Um, NPR, mm-hmm. uh, those kind of things were, you know, accessible to me, even though we were, quote-unquote, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So, and then on top of that, you've got AM. Anybody remember what that is? AM radio, yeah. FM radio. <laughs> uh, and that I grew up with country, uh, top 40. Um, you know, and a great record collection because I'm the youngest of 13 children. Wow. And so when I came into the house, when I, I was uh, an arrival, uh, there were already six siblings gone. Wow. And so when they'd come back, uh, they'd been back at various times, and they'd all gone to universities and traveled abroad and all of these things. You know, my parents were very much about uh, getting the kids to know that there was a world outside of our little place, you know. Yeah. That we were very, very active in our community, but they sent uh, made sure everybody knew that they were expected to leave and go away. Yeah. Uh, not because they didn't love us, but because they wanted us to get out and see the world. And so from a very young age, our family was different in that way because my parents really had a priority on kicking us out of the nest and making sure that we knew there were worlds beyond and we were expected to go explore those. And, and, and that's... Uh, well, uh, no, I'm sorry. I was just going to say it's interesting. It sounds like, you know, growing up in Kansas, you had a very cognizant family that wanted you to be aware of the arts and to be involved with music. And having that many siblings must have just boated your eardrums well to have a record player with all that vinyl. Right, exactly. It, it really did. There was a huge box of, you know, toss offs, uh, toss offs. You know, as people would go travel or leave, they'd leave the, you know, this vinyl collection there in the box or the turntable. And I was just thinking before our conversation today, um, I just started making some lists of stuff, and I, I just realized, you know, that 
I was a very avid operator uh, of that turntable from, I guess, the age, I think the age of four. I was just playing records. Uh, there's pictures of me just playing records. I, here I am in my little booties, like my little boots I'd wear and my jeans and just a little, basically, uh, just uh, off of being a toddler. And I was, uh, I was listening to records and just the grooves were coming out of them. Yeah. And um, I was, so I was very fortunate that way. And then, of course, um, my parents also had a priority on music education, which I think uh, was often set them apart as parents in, in the farm community. Uh, all of us were expected to play some instrument. And so the instruments varied, but they didn't vary that much because, as you can imagine, a farmer with 13 children... Uh, didn't have at his disposal a lot of expendable income to go out and buy all kinds of instruments. So, like the vinyl collection, there were instruments that were discarded along the way, and we were expected to pick those up, <laughs> you know, if if they weren't in use, and instead of getting new ones. Um, for instance, piano. I, I started taking piano, I think, probably at the age of eight, if not sooner. I think it was officially at eight. I started getting my piano instruction. Yeah. But I already had a sister who was had just done her, at 16, fronted the uh, orchestra in St. Joseph. She was playing uh, Rhapsody in Blue as a soloist. So that was a big deal to go to the big city and see my sister at 16 fronting a full orchestra as the soloist. Uh, for Rhapsody in Blue. That's cool. That was that was a profound experience for me to see her do that and yeah. and to listen to to her all that summer prior to listen to how she practiced because of course she was home for the summer she she was home she was at boarding school she was home for the summer practicing in preparation for this this uh, performance and it was an important. You know, it just it just came to me through osmosis. You know, I wasn't sitting there listening to her, watching her. She was in another room practicing in the back uh, in a separate room. But nevertheless, she practiced for hours. And yeah. you'd listen. I would listen as a, as a young girl, child, listen. Uh, I absorbed how she practiced. Yeah. You know, taking apart just one figure. Taking apart and, and playing that figure again and getting the speed up, and then incorporating that into a run, half a run, the full run, you know, the full page, you know, those kind of things about how you practice and what goes into uh, a performance. Right. At that level already, even though I wasn't, you know, sitting there thinking, oh my, she's practicing that right now. No, I'd just be listening while I was doing something else, you know. Yeah, yeah and, that's cool. And that was all day long. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's really the backbone of education. Peer learning's huge, so that that makes total sense. You know, whether yeah. it's something you're 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 formally saying in your head, I'm I'm grabbing something that my brother or sister's doing. It's just something that's happening, and it's having a big influence. Yeah, and I, it did have a big influence. And I didn't. I just only remembered this right now because you've really this conversation. I was writing down a few things to 
to try to jar my memory because I'm a person, uh, whether good or bad, I'm a person, I think I might have said this to you, who is always looking forward to the next project and so, or to the next thing or, you know, I'm always, I'm just one of those people who keeps looking forward and sure. I very rarely look back at my life. And so talking with you today and talking with you the other day has, has, has really made me, you know, has inspired me to actually look back a little bit at my life because, you know, there's so much when you don't linger or look back, you forget it. You forget to make connections, or I, at least I do. I'm a bit slow on the uptake with making connections. And so I'm making these connections now as I speak with you, too, just remembering her. And then, you know, brothers, and she also played clarinet, and various sisters, it seemed the sisters seemed to be passing around clarinets, and uh, a brother playing trumpet. So many people played guitar. Um, everyone sang. And it was a radical discussion we had uh, when I, at the dinner table, and I didn't know which way it was going to go. But when it came to my turn to pick up an instrument other than the piano, um, once I got into band, and that would be about, I guess, the age of 11. So I really, really had to fight to get the alto sax. Because yeah. nobody, we didn't have an alto in the house, and nobody had played one. Yeah. And so I really, really had to state my case. I remember at the dinner table, just, it was terrifying for me to be put on the spot like that to say why I wanted to play the alto sax instead of the clarinet, like my sisters had done. <laughs> and gosh darn it, we have a clarinet here that's beautiful and ready for you to play already. Yeah. How can we justify buying you an alto saxophone? Yeah. But eventually they, uh, I got my wish. Cool. And, uh, yeah, that was amazing. So, I hope this interview doesn't derail any existentialism that you have going right now. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's my hope, that there's no residual. But I do want to step back a little, and, and just before we move into your career right now, when did you first start singing? Uh, and I, I would say uh, when I came out, when I came on the scene. I think that's when I, I, I started singing, and I never stopped. And again, I would, um, here I was in this din uh, and chaos, and... King Family Choir, uh, there was there was there were songs going all the time, and so I just joined in uh, with harmonies. Usually, uh, older brothers and sisters took the lead, and uh, we'd all fill in different harmonies along the way. And then when I was out going to get uh, a milk cow across the pastures, that would be like a I guess a twenty minute walk or so, maybe longer. I don't know. Uh, I would fill the expanses of land with songs. So I, I would do my soloing out into the fields and to the animals, and and I did lots of walks. So singing for me, uh, also I was thinking about that today, singing for me was also a very physical act in the fact that I was always active. I was always working, yeah, uh, weeding, uh, working the land, uh, hauling hay, driving a tractor, uh, retrieving animals, you know, uh, hmm. I was uh, always singing, you yeah. know, while doing physical labor, 
or walking or covering expanses of land. So singing for me is a very physical act as well. Um, and a, a, an act I get pleasure from, as far, like, like I get pleasure from hard work, like actually working hard and physically doing manual labor. I still, I do really enjoy that uh, a lot. Or sports, you know, that kind of thing. I, I, physically, I like to be active. Yeah. And, and singing is a part of that to me. It's a very physical, very sensual act for me. You know, it seems like most people think about singing only as a real, real rigorous physical activity when they hear that vocal cords go out or something extreme like that. It's just, I don't know that it's a popular notion that people think, oh, this is a very rigorously physical demanding kind of activity, but that, that's that's a great way you describe that. Yeah, you know, I don't think a lot of people think of it that way, including a lot of singers. I don't think they think of it that way. But, you know, one thing I also like to do uh, is I still have this uh, probably very annoying habit for this, the inhabitants, my fellow inhabitants of San Francisco. When I walk, I sing. Hmm. And I just really enjoy doing that. I find uh, singing and walking go hand in hand. <laughs> and um, as well as uh, doing other, you know, physical exercises, I think, I think that... Part of the reason why I have such a powerful voice, it's a, I have a very, very powerful voice, is because of, of built, trying to, attempting to, to uh, not only fill expanses of land and space, but also because I sing, you know, while I work out too, you know, I'll, I'll you know, I like to kickbox. I like really physical activities. So yeah. I'll sing while I kickbox as well. You Very know, cool. And that's a great, and that's just great training, you know, for your diaphragm. It's great. It's great. It really keeps your, you know, you physically fit with with your, you know, your instrument. Your instrument's your body, right? Yeah. Uh, as a singer, as a vocalist, so uh, you're vocalizing. So as I do that, you know, a workout, or I recommend that to any anybody who wants to really develop some strength and and uh, get good control. Um, to work out and sing at the same time. You know, it's interesting. I'm going to get into a portion here of the interview where I talk about your time in Italy, but I remember a time when I was in Rome. I went through uh, St. Peter's Square, and I went down, and I found this uh, operatic uh, concert with Vivaldi that was going to take place. And it was just another night in the Vatican, and I went in, and this operatic singer blew me away. It was probably one of the first times I'd ever been in a performance and literally could not help from getting swelled up with emotion. And that right there, when I think about the power of singing and the power of the voice and how well it can be projected, I mean, this voice was unbelievable. It, was, it, it wasn't even real. It was like a megaphone was in front of it. So, I mean, it was yeah. crazy, you know. So yeah, those, and especially those 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 singers, the classical, you know, the operatic singers really have it going on. Oh man, it's those crazy. Folks, yeah, they they really are um, trained for acoustic performance, and you know, there's a debate now whether or not they should be miking uh, operatic singers or not. But uh, you know, I I don't know where where that's going to end up going. It'll probably go to miking, I'm sure, but. Uh, there still are a lot of people, purists, who say, why would an opera singer ever need a microphone? 
you know, because they are trained for just that, for that wide open power, you know, and just the ultimate, the consummate at their their instruments. And it's so, it's still never, it, it, it always gets me, you know, that opera singers can get quite the uh, Rubenesque, I'll say. Uh, they can have quite a bit of girth on them, you know. Yeah. And I don't. And I, that always amazes me. That uh, you know, I guess you know, being physically fit, you know, as what I think, you know, what I like to be, uh, doesn't equate to necessarily having a, I guess, a physically fit voice. Because gosh, you know, so many of those amazing singers uh, are quite large. Well, I saw an interview with Renee Fleming, who's going to do the national anthem, and and she was talking about miking and and all of that, and how a lot of what she does is all natural, and that's a voice right there. I mean, I it it's crazy. Um, speaking of being very eloquent with describing a singer, you have a very eloquent bio on your. Um, on your website, part freight train, part junkyard, junkyard trombone. Um, Lisa alternately locomotes and floats through a myriad of moods and vocal styles, spicing her tunes with Portuguese, French, Spanish, and Italian. But her operatic and theatrical training couldn't polish off the rough edges, and she wields her acrobatic three-octave range like a weapon, like a wand, intensified by sheer joy, crankiness, and irony. Talk to me about that. Well, I do say I'll stand by that description. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like it. It's one of my favorite descriptions. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. I'm glad to hear that. Yes, you can read my uh, bio on my website, LisaAngelkin.com. I'll put that plug in. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think that's pretty accurate because I am, uh, I have a voice that is very horn-like. And can be very rough and very junkyard trombone, as I'd call it. But then I also have uh, many, uh, I have a voice that, that can float, be very light and airy. You know, a lot of the uh, softer tunes and airy tunes um, require that kind of thing, that, you know, that dynamic level. And, uh, yeah, I got a lot of rough edges. You know, I had <laughs> classical training, and I, but I, the way before, uh, I got classical training. You know, I had about 16 years of life and living underneath my belt. And so that, and right there is the key word, I could belt. And yeah. I still can really belt. I have a very powerful chest voice. And because I was singing, quote unquote, incorrectly uh, from a classical standpoint all, the, all those 16 years. And I was singing all the time. Yeah. So... You know, I got the classical training, and that was a godsend. Uh, Absolutely. Because it, 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 it increased my range by at least five, six notes uh, upward, easily. Yeah. And really kept me vocally healthy. I really learned vocal health and learned how to... Uh, work and I still have a long way to go. You know, there's always something to work on, and, and my head voice is still something I could really use more work on. Yeah. But but yeah, but uh, you know, it's there when I need it, and uh, and it's like a you know, it's like exercise. If you the more you exercise, it's a better 
the, the stronger it gets, the more flexible it is. Absolutely. But yeah, so, so I got, yes, I got the classical training, but, like, I don't know if you've ever seen some opera singers try to sing jazz or, or more popular forms of art. Yeah. Of, of songs. Um it's, it sounds kind of funny, like, uh, oh, what, what tune could I, um, um, I don't know, just any tune, let's, um, some jazz tune, uh, Stormy Weather, I think I've heard somebody do that one, and, and it just, you know, I won't sing that classically. I may use some classical techniques in it, but, right. and I've had the classical training, but I could never leave behind the very base, the very earthy uh, chest and tones. And so that's where I say the rough edges, basically. Uh, you know, I can do the classical, but um, whether I want to is another story. It, it, you know, I, it, I use it when I need it. Yeah. But I use it very sparingly, and I use it mostly to achieve color and uh, upper register uh, to increase range, vocal health, and to achieve certain colors that I'm looking for uh, stylistically. Well, so, yeah, that, that description, yeah, that's why, that's why that description, I think, is pretty accurate. Yeah, it's a great description. Well, and it sounds like it's boded pretty well, your last album, your latest, I should say, Little Warrior. You got a great review by Christopher London in the Jazz Times. Uh, said it does precisely what a good sophomore album should do, builds upon a solid base. Talk to me about Little Warrior and uh, how you feel about it now that it's done and having a glowing review and just kind of the afterglow of, of the album. Well, thanks for asking about this album and what I think about it right now. The album came out in October, so it really hasn't been out that long. And we did press really hard to uh, meet that release date. So uh, right now I'm still in sort of a postpartum funk. Uh, I'm very happy with the reviews that I've been getting. I'm so chuffed that it's being uh, received quite well. It's, all the reviews have been pretty darn great. And so I'm very excited about that because this album is a departure from the album Caravan, which was released in 2010. And it's a departure in the fact that it has more originals on it. Um, Caravan had all my arrangements, which uh, do put a spin on standards and some contemporary tunes, one of which was Billy Idol's White Wedding. Yeah. Another one was Joni Mitchell's Troubled Child. But the only original, per se, on that album was my lyric version of Freddie Hubbard's Red Clay. Mm -hmm. And that was actually the most popular tune um, and the most played tune off of Caravan. But this album... In a departure from that, goes into more adventurous harmony, much more dissonance. Uh, I did a lot more exploration. I, uh, when I did this album, I, I wanted to explore uh, different aspects, uh, opposing forces uh, that reflect opposing forces that were going on inside of me that I was exploring spiritually. Yeah. So this, I 
called Little Warrior, a sort of travelogue, if you will, of my spiritual and musical explorations over the past three years. Um, so what does that mean? The opposing forces of dissonance and consonance. So what I was trying to do was explore ways of making the album very lush and very dissonant, very um, almost epic and symphonic at moments. Yeah. Airbone and stark. I was trying to explore with different dynamics, different instruments, different shapes of the tunes. And um, I'm actually quite pleased with how it turned out. I think that uh, each of the tunes in itself is very unique, but I think this is a cohesive album, and there are harmonic, subtle harmonic. Uh, themes that nobody seems to have quite picked up on yet uh, as far as critically, but there are themes that are interwoven throughout the album, and that in itself harmonically uh, makes the album gel. But also thematically, the album is more adventurous. Uh, the, the, the themes are range from joy to despair, uh, alienation, addiction. Um, let's see what else is in there. Um, desperation. There's a lot of. There's just a lot of different emotions going on. Yeah. Uh, as well. So there's an emotional as well as a harmonic breath that I was exploring with Little Warrior and how I feel about it now, personally, uh, and irrespective of. Uh, critics or feedback, I personally uh, feel this album, I'm very happy with this album because it's a very, it's, it's of a very personal nature and every note on it uh, means what meant something to me. I, I really put a lot into these arrangements sure. and these instrumentations and the choices I made of uh, I wrote, arranged, and uh, produced this album, and, and I really put a lot of myself into this album, and I'm pleased with that. Um, having said that, I know that folks who liked Caravan, which was more, I'd call it mainstream with a twist. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of people who love that album, who find this album a little too uh, adventuresome for them. Right. But then there are others who, actually, much to my delight, many more of those people who like Caravan actually prefer Little Warrior for that very reason. They like the adventure, the, the new direction, the edginess of it, the, the risk that, yeah. that's involved in this album, the unknown. There's more of an unknown in this album, and it takes you farther uh, in, in other directions that a typical jazz vocal album would not take you. And so that's also garnering me a new audience, happily, and also a little bit, um, getting a little bit younger audience as well, which I really am chuffed about because of, you know, as far as future goes for uh, jazz or for my future even, my, my musical future, I want to speak also to a wider age group as well. So I'm really chuffed that younger folks are starting to turn an ear towards it as well. Well, it's like cigarettes. You get them hooked young, and then they'll, 
they'll they'll stay in for a long time. So it's good. Right. You know. There you go. The jazz cigarette is being disseminated to the youth. So. Um, the, we can only hope it's that addictive. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's a lot of additives. There's a lot of instruments. There's a lot of soul. Uh, I'm addicted. Oh, man, we could, we could roll with it. We could riff on that one. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. It's the, it's the addiction that won't kill you. So, um, so we've touched on... I have, uh, you know, I think you had a link that I could go to and get it, and I need to do that. I've just been stuck on Little Warrior, really, kind of. It's a great album. I've and and, and it is it is like you said. There's a difference to this. There is not a mold that is typical of an album that comes out from a jazz vocalists, and I really like that. And it really has grown on me. So I need to dive into Caravan after oh, well, thank this. thank you so much. You know, and that's the thing, too, that the way you said it, it, the album is growing on you. I'm so psyched, you know. That, and, and, you know, with that potential, too, is that you'll, you'll grow out of it, too. But it's, it's, uh, it's an album that requires... It's a, it's, a, it's a challenging album, you know. If, if you're expecting to throw on Little Warrior uh, and just get it, uh, I think... I mean, that's great if you do, and some people do, but I think that I've been finding people are listening to it, and with multiple listens, I keep getting that comment. It's like, whoa, the more I listen to this, it's like an onion. There's so many levels to yeah. like get to, and I missed that, and holy cow, there's this going on, and oh, that scene repeats, and I, you know, it's, there's a lot of, it's very dense. It's yeah. a very dense album, you know, and, um. You know, uh, that was a choice. I could, you know, I could have, I could have released that album with just uh, the rhythm section and me, and it it was a gorgeous album. I tell you what, those three guys. Uh, I went in the studio and recorded the the eleven tracks for this album with Bill Contis out of L.A. He's a pianist uh, who works. He's in Dory Kainini band. I don't know if you know the Brazilian. Uh, brilliant Brazilian singer-songwriter, Dory Caini. Yeah. That's who I saw him with. I saw him in action with him and fell in love with his playing, and I knew I wanted to work with him. He was up here from L.A. with Dory. And, um, and then my two two collaborators, two guys I love working with, worked on with on Caravan, the bass of Sam Bevan on acoustic and electric, and Matthew Swindells on drums. And... Those three guys and I went in and recorded the 11 tracks. And, you know, I finished, we did the edits. Uh, the brilliant engineer, uh, well, I had two engineers on the project, but the guy who mixed the album, Dan Feisley, and I put the edits together. And it, I just thought, well, I should just release this album, which is the rhythm section and no vocals, because it was, <laughs> it was absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, sure. And I thought, I thought, I'll, I'll release the first vocal album ever that doesn't include any vocals. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it was that beautiful. Yeah. And, and putting the vocals on it, too, then, I could have just released it as that album. Yeah. It would have been gorgeous. And I'll tell you what, it would have saved me thousands and thousands of dollars. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. But, <laughs> but I decided I wanted to explore. There was a lot in my head. Uh, when I'd written these or arranged these, 
And I wanted to see if I could start to get a part of what was in my head out. Uh, yeah. And so I went ahead and then brought in folks to do overdubs over these beautiful rhythm tracks. And so that's how we that's how we recorded this album. Whereas Caravan was done live, yeah, from anywhere to four to ten people at a time, sure, which was madness in itself. So this album was different in the fact that all the tracks and most and those vocal tracks too were live. Uh, yeah. you know, I thought they were going to be scratch tracks, but I ended up using almost all of it. That's cool. So that's why it's got a real live performance feel about it, especially vocally. Um, it's got a real live feel about it because those were done live you know those those are the those are the quote-unquote scratch tracks sure. people who don't know scratch tracks are what you'd sing along and you'd think that maybe later you'd re-record them yeah but these scratch tracks ended up becoming the the tapes that were used uh on this album it's the reason why we have the beatles anthology yeah you know um so we've really we've covered your 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 two albums, and I want to kind of get an idea of your career trajectory. There's specifics I want to kind of get at, but I want to kind of have an idea um, of what 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 from your career start to today. Give me kind of an idea of what's happened. Yeah. Um... Well, I studied music, as you know, yeah, I, you know, started really pretty pretty early, just as far as a listener and a singer and really being an avid uh, participant in music as a vocalist, and then added on the piano and the saxophone, the alto sax. And then um, I ended up in my university years, I, that's when I really started, at 16 I started taking some voice lessons, and they were, they were okay, but I really overhauled my voice, I call it an overhaul at 18, I really overhauled my voice, um, in the fact that I just concentrated on, uh, the classical, uh, approach to singing, yeah. really developed my head voice, so then from there, um, you know, just basically locked myself for a couple years in a practice room and overhauled my voice. Yeah. And at the, and, and at the same time, I was studying piano with a great uh, professor, Richard Reber. And about two years after uh, being accepted into the, uh, the opera program, um, I decided opera really wasn't for me. I, I'd done all this great work, and it's work that's paid off ever since. But uh, then I switched over to what was called an opera musical theater program. And I was supposed to technically be kicked out of the theater, pro uh, out of the opera program, but my professor kept me on the fly and didn't tell anybody. So I continued to study with her, started doing more uh, musical theater. I had blown my voice out, and so she worked with me on that, about how to sing and belt. She, she started then to teach me after two years of classical training. She focused with me on, let's work on how to do popular vocals and popular singing and use technique so that you never blow your voice out again. Sure. But you keep getting that power. You keep, you know, belting. You take those, you know, 
this is technical stuff, but take your chest voice up into the regions of your middle and your head voice, that kind of thing, uh, without ever hurting yourself again. So that's what we, we then worked on. And then from there, I uh, just kind of floated around and landed in a, a band by accident, started, co-founded a band with a uh, guy out in D.C., in Washington, D.C., when I was uh, living there. And that band was called the Zimmermans. Mm-hmm. And we did that band. It was hugely popular. It was a band that had, it was, for lack of a more original classification, I think it was classified as alt, uh, alternative music. But it had a huge slant towards uh, jazz voicing. It was uh, a makeup of guitar, bass, drums, sax, trumpet, and vocals. And I played some accordion. Cool. Uh, on some kind of psychopunk, kind of psycho polka kind of tune. <laughs> it, it was a very catch-all kind of band, multi-genre band, and very and people dug it, man. I mean, people were really, and that's the thing. Audiences really, really are much more uh, open than than where record labels and and presenters and promoters are. Oh, yeah. They're much more creative than the people who are programming music. Oh, yeah. Goes without saying. Yeah, and people, I think, are really hungry for that kind of crossover and gender, uh, genre-bending and (laughs) gender-bending, genre-bending kind of uh, music. And And I think that I've really, with my own schizophrenic type of music and eclectic background, uh, you know, I've, I've taken that into, especially with Caravan, but really moving into Little Warrior, you can see that it's kind of moving into, you know, incorporating a lot of different, uh, well, not a lot of different, but, but definitely certain, it's a certain hybrid. It, it definitely is. A, I call it a musical mutt. And, and I've always been more interested in musical mutt than staying as a purist to any form. And so the Zimmermans were a real exciting uh, phase in my life during the mid to late 90s was when this was. And um, we were on fire and everybody was loving us and we were playing all these festivals and we had a big following. It was, it was great, it was a lot of fun. And it was all original music. It wasn't any covers, by the way. Cool. What, and, um, was that inspired by yeah. Bob Dylan, by his last name? Sorry? Was yeah, this... the name was inspired by, uh, exactly, by Bob Dylan. Gotcha. Um, but I'm, I certainly am not a Dylan fan. Right. But uh, the principal songwriter, uh, Jonathan Spottiswood, who now has a group, uh, well, I, I, I think he's down from between the UK and New York now. He's actually originally from the UK, and I think that's where he's at now. But um, he's got a group. Uh, it's he was performing a lot, and I think they're still performing in uh, New York uh, at times, and that's under his name, Spottiswood, and, cool. and the enemies, and his enemies. Good and deal. Anyway, so Jonathan and I were doing this group with a great cast of characters, and, um, and then from that, yeah, I went up to New York and uh, kind of left that behind. And just started writing and working on my own and came out to the West Coast eventually uh, in 99, San Francisco, and 
started writing music for a theater company, started writing a lot of original music, recording, a lot of demos. I picked up the bass and was, uh, you know, I was doing a, a recording session and the bassist called me the day of and couldn't do it. And so I, re I went in and recorded. I just did it myself. And from then on, I decided, well, I can do it myself. So I started playing bass then and uh, writing in front of a band. I ended up writing uh, fronting a band, doing my originals with this group. Uh, just, uh, you know, drums, bass, uh, guitar, two guitars, and um, and then me doing vocals. Cool. And uh, that was actually just starting to take off. God, this is going on forever, this, <laughs> this trajectory. Oh, that's uh, good. And then I got into rock musical, and that went on for about eight months. And then by the time I got out of that, those guys had all dispersed across the planet. And, uh, yeah, I was doing jazz as well. And I've been always doing jazz, too, front and bands, uh, more standard stuff. And then it was when I went to Umbria Jazz. Uh, I decided after coming back from that great experience, I would uh, record a jazz album uh, and so, like, so that I could, uh, an album that I arranged, an album I, I wanted to do on my own so that I could... Uh, the ass back to Umbria Jazz. <laughs> and that hasn't happened yet, but I've got to send the little warrior. Nice. To, you know, i got to knock on that door. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that will happen. Yes, indeed. So... No, that's cool. Now that that gives us a good backdrop on on oh. your career. So let's. Yeah, I'm tired out after that. No wonder why I don't look back. Oh no, that yeah, there you go. Me. Right, exactly. I like existentialism myself. It's good. Um, so you're you're fluent in Italian, and you had mentioned that you had lived there. Talk about your time in Italy and how formative that was for you and your approach to not only life but jazz. Wow, what a great place Italy is. Uh, I, I ended up getting uh, into uh, the Italian culture and the language because of operatic training I, I had alluded to earlier. And of course, what better language to know than Italian if you're studying lyric opera. And at the same time, I had come out, uh, when I was 18, I'd come out to California to stay with my sister, and uh, I got a job for the summer at a uh, an Italian restaurant, and I was the only uh, American working there. And I was here. I was with this crazy, uh, boisterous group of uh, people from Napoli, hmm. and uh, my family was quite. My father was very Bergman-like, very German. And uh, you can imagine with 13 children, he had to really keep us in line, poor, poor guy. <laughs> and so he was very, he was, he was a man of few words and an amazing scowl. <laughs> he could stop you dead with his eyes. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I think I've, I've, I learned that from him. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, I, I've been, and I've been desperately trying to unlearn it all my life. Oh, yeah. We, <laughs> it's like, oh, you're getting 
giving me that look again. It's like, oh, no. Yeah, we turn into our parents. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know. Yeah, so my father was a very few words. There was very little time to have a dialogue at our house, uh, especially for the youngest in the family. And so, uh, I don't know. We kept, He kept a tight ship going and... You know, we didn't have a lot, there wasn't a lot of discussion or, or disagreement going on. And so when I went out and worked in this restaurant where these people were literally uh, shouting and yelling at each other uh, for quite some time in heated conversation or fighting, and then at, when that was done, they would hug each other and say, oh, thank you. Uh, and I, I, you know, thank you for that. Thank you for that discussion. And, it, you know, it, it just really, after a while, I got it, you know. I was like, oh, they're doing that thing again where they exercise their voices. <laughs> and then they're going to they're, they're exercise their, uh, argue, you know, their extemporaneous speaking skills and their, their litigation skills and that kind of thing. And then they're going to hug afterwards and yep. thank each other for that that very exhilarating exercise and exchange, you know? And and so that really, really was appealing to me. I really got excited by that way of life and that way of living and that way of communicating. And so nothing more than that inspired me, uh, those folks and this new introduction into this culture and this, dynamic way of communicating just really made me want to learn that language. So that's what I did. I went back and uh, started learning Italian and uh, eventually started seeing myself in these classes. I'd visualized myself on a plane after about a year. I started seeing myself on a plane flying there. And so that's what I did. I ended up getting a fellowship to go study in Florence at the University of Florence for a year. Not at an American university, but at the University of Florence. Yeah. And uh, take all my courses in Italian and all of that. And uh, so that's, you know, I studied two years in the States, and then, but I didn't really get fluent until I lived there. So it took about four months to get fluent, and that was total immersion. I never spoke English, and uh, I never looked back. And so, yeah, I, and then I went lived in Naples. I, I did a post-grad. Uh, fellowship in Naples at the University of Naples and uh, it's just the art of life the art of living uh, something we know nothing about uh, here on any level that I've ever experienced yeah it's amazing you know when I when I when I think about you being fluent in Italian the closest I came to real fluency, you know, I could say things. I went over there several times on several trips, probably for a total of three and a half weeks. And the closest I came to victory one time was successfully ordering a pack of cigarettes. And the person behind the counter still looked at me and said in English, nice try. So I didn't even get to leave with, with the knowledge that I just did some pithy transaction for smokes. I still had to be told, nice job, American guy. You almost had it, so. But yeah, it's. Oh man! Yeah. That's really surprised they even. But did they mean that sarcastically? No, 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 no. It was totally done in a really cool thing. But there was. Yeah, yeah, because I, I could hardly imagine because any attempt to 
it seems usually good. I'm glad to hear that because, yeah, because usually I've found any attempt by anyone to speak the language is, is met with great delight. Yeah. And glee. Yeah. And encouragement. They were happy, very, very happy. So it was, it was, it was one of those, you know, kind of, uh, you know, coach to kid kind of moments, like nice hit, you know. So yeah. it, oh, that's great. And where's your family from? My family is from uh, my dad's side is from Shaka in Sicily, and um, uh, actually his his my grandfather's side, my grandmother's side is from Napoli. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I got a nice little melding. I actually wrote, I had a pen pal through high school. We wrote for about 11 years before I went to Castle Ferentio, which is south of Florence, and uh, flew from here to New York, from New York to Milan, took a train down to Castle Ferentio. I mean, that was back in the 90s when there was no cell phones, phone card. I did not know the language. The book that I was using to learn the language is so tattered and old and absolutely out to lunch that they, and that and her family owned a restaurant. They roared every night and they, they cried when they read this book because it was so outdated and horrible. I oh mean, they just were like, what is the matter with you? It's like, what? I, hey, I'm just a guy. I went to a thrift store. It's from the 70s. It looked like it worked. <laughs> So that, 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 but anyway, they taught me that the, the most magnanimous moment I ever had was when her dad taught me how to eat pasta. He was watching me eat it. He just literally, he was man a few words. He stood up, he came over, he said, but he didn't even speak in English to me, but I knew to put my utensils down and he showed me how to twist the, the fork on the spoon. And he right. was, he was kind of pissed. He was like, dude, you, you're not going to come in here and eat the wrong way. You can, you can screw up my language. You can do this, you can do that, but you're not going to eat wrong, so right. eating is religion. Don't give him indigestion. Right. Yeah, I don't want. I don't want to give anybody the ajita. I'm not. I'm not that guy. So, um, so. That's fantastic. Yeah. So it was. It was fun. I loved it. Um, so let me let me kind of go into kind of an off the wall jazz question. If you could meet one jazz musician from any era at any time, who would it be and why? It would definitely be Dizzy Gillespie because I love Dizzy's playing. I always have, even from a young age, and I've always had a huge crush on him, too, and I just think he's cute as a button, and um, I just love his open nature, his open vibe. Um, I think he, you know, the reason why is, uh, I'd really like to have, uh, meet him is because I just think he'd be super fun yeah. to hang out with. Uh, and I don't know how much we'd necessarily talk about music, even. Um, although we could, uh, definitely. There's lots of questions I could ask him or things to talk about. What was it like during all these different, you know, this wide-ranging uh, expanse of his career, uh, both, you know, age-wise and geographically and musically, uh, what it was like to work with folks and, and that sort of thing, traveling, just everything. Um but basically, it would just be because I think he'd be just a riot to hang out with. I know he's dead, but 
You know, I did a retrospective on Dizzy. I did an hour show on him. And, you know, when you are, are dubbed the clown prince of jazz with the amount of characters that have floated through this genre of music, you've achieved a trophy that's unmatched. Um, and, and, and it's amazing, too, to look at all of the work that he did. I mean, everybody, everybody remembers the iconic Cheeks, but they don't understand that he was kind of the one that got Charlie Parker on his way. He's yeah. the one that kind of probably really taught Miles how to transition into different modes of jazz. I mean, the the level of teaching and and what he gave to this craft was enormous. So. Yeah, he was a very giving person, and also you know, and and, and I was just going to say too, he was also very vocal friendly too, uh, which you know is something to be said for some of the horn players of any era. Uh, he was, he, you know, he sang himself. He was a great singer, great scatter, great vocal, you know, did, you know, just such fun vocalizations, you know. Yeah. And also he great, had light on his feet, too, in some of his dance performances. They were really cool. Yeah. But, yeah, the, the guy was so open. Yeah. Uh, to, you know, different people. And, and, and again, like you say, it just seems like he, he really was a nurturer, encouraged people, uh, just like to have good time too, I think, you know. Yeah. And he was damn he was just amazing, you know, his his compositions and his musicianship, his technique, it, it just I love that album, The Giant. I just love it so much and I love uh, the version he's got a version of uh, Alone Together that just makes me weep. Yeah. It's so expressive in a way that I I find him very unique. You know you know when you hear Desi I know when I hear him, you know, his expression, his ability to, oh, his dynamic uh, and technical finesse, it's just express. it just, those are used in ways to, to express emotion. And he really speaks to me. Uh, yeah. Well, it just looks like a lot of fun. Yeah. So, speaking of a guy that had a very long, fruitful career, let me, let me ask you this, if, Let's go down 20 years down the line, and and how do you want to be remembered? How do you want to be remembered as a singer, as an artist, as a jazz musician? What what would you like to have said about you? Mm. Well, I suppose what would be said about me, uh, you know, I'll answer that question and what I'd like to do uh, from here, and then maybe people would actually... Uh, get that right if that's what I actually end up doing. <laughs> but yeah, what I'd like to see happen is that I could get, I, I feel like right now at this point, uh, I'm ripe to, to get my music out to a larger audience. I'd really uh, like to be touring now and playing with my own band and being out there. I'm really, really ready to be doing that. And so I'd like to start touring uh, a lot more. And with that, I would like to uh, do some workshops and work with other vocalists and of, of any age, including older people too, because I love old people. I love I love people that are like have the stories. You know, this, I don't even know how to call it. Like I shouldn't say old people, I guess, but like you know, people who are older than me. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's what, <laughs> <I should say. laughs> that's what I should say. People who are older than me 
and people that often get like marginalized or forgotten about. Sure. So I think you know I'd really like to work with people who are older as well as the people who are younger, and like to really find ways to nurture and explore and be a Dizzy Gillespie of sorts to, to sort of encourage uh, their voices and whatever that means, meaning vocalization, finding a voice. Um, so I'd like to do that in tandem with travel. Yeah. Also, I'd like to travel to uh, Brazil, especially. I'd like to go down uh, into, like, Hatsifa, that area, and study rhythms. I'd really like to... So, you know, 20 years from now, I'd, I'd like people to say, wow, you know, she really started to get rhythmically adept and complex and really started to use rhythms. Uh, her, her rhythmic vocabulary really expanded through the time of her career. That's yeah. what I'd like to hear said about me. I'd like to hear people say she really um, helped others define their voice, discover their uniqueness. She really, Lisa really uh, found a couple of great artists to work with and do arrangements for, to produce. So that, that I'd like to do as well, is like arrange and produce other artists yeah. and collaborate in that way. Um, and also I'd like to have other people arrange for me and produce my work. Uh, you know, so Lisa had the chance to work with some great producers and together they... You know, I, I, you know, what I should say is just I'd like to collaborate. I, mean, I really would like to collaborate with some folks. Yeah. Uh, and across and, uh, genres as well. Not yeah. just Not just quote-unquote jazz producers or jazz musicians or jazz instrumentalists or vocalists. Um, this is all very exciting. I like this. This, this, this makes me all excited. I like moving. Cool. I like looking forward. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, Absolutely. That's what I like to have said. Uh, that I made a great living <laughs> uh, at my. Uh, ultimately, I ended up uh, having a prosperous career. Uh, ultimately, uh, I, I lived a, a comfortable life based on my based uh, because of my hard work and my creativity and my uh, love of performance, writing, and a love of music. Um, I'd also like to, uh, you know, get some credits for, I've already done some theater work, uh, working, uh, I've written music, both songs and uh, segue, uh, um, you know, the songs between scenes in theater, two different theater pieces. And I really like doing that. I really like working on theater, uh, writing for theater. I like to write for still film as well. I'm currently right now working, um, taking some audio engineering courses to get to that point where I'm ready to start scoring and, cool. and writing for video and film. Right on. Uh, yeah. So that, that's a new that'll be a new direction, a new bunch of tools to put in the tool bag as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it just uh, and then I have I, I continue to explore that she continued throughout her career to explore different avenues to continue to compose to write even more, uh, explore different instrumentation and arranging, just to keep growing and developing as an artist um, and a musician and vocalist. 
know. Absolutely. Not be limited, not just stay comfortable or ever get comfortable. I wish, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think I've felt comfortable for a day in my life. There you go. <laughs> well, that, that's a perfect segue into my next question, and I have only one more question that's going to derail your existentialism, and then I have a question about the present. <laughs> So this is my this is this is the only this is the only other question I have about the past. Do you live with any regrets? No. Okay. I don't. I, I, I just don't believe in them. It's because, like I said, I don't really look back. Yeah. So let me ask you this: my final question to kind of give a portal into what you personally listen to as an artist. What's the last thing you listened to before we had our interview today? Rotary Connection, Black Gold of the Sun, you know them? No. You gotta check them out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, they're great. They, I, I actually was hipped to them by Matt Spindell, uh, the drummer I work with uh, out of the UK. Um, and the Rotary Connection is actually an American like uh, psychedelic funk band from he- the 60s and 70s. Very cool. And they are really, really cool. And cool. when they split up, uh, one of those guys went on to produce Earth, Wind, and Fire. So that kind of makes, that, that probably makes some sense to you. That'll give you an idea of sort of maybe the genre, you know, the psychedelic funk type of music they were doing. That, that could give you an idea of what direction they were in. And then he went off and produced Earth, Wind, and Fire in the 70s. Very cool. Lisa, thank you very much for speaking with us at Neon Jazz. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. And Kids Kansas and Kansas City and Kansas City, Missouri for me. Thanks for tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest singers around the country out there doing that jazz these days. And thanks to Lisa for her time and insight into her craft. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Or for all things Neon Jazz, you can go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. In a certain mood, I search my house and look. And once upon a stormy night. Neon Jazz.